welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. It's Dario here. This is season number 17. We're just starting in 2023 and it's a great pleasure to welcome back my partner in crime for this uh, odyssey of a podcast, Neil Fox. Neil, welcome back. Hello, Dario. Hello, everyone. It's really nice to be back. Thank you for welcoming me back so nicely. No problem. You uh, you obviously came back for one episode last last season for the Sight and Sound, which was our a big hit for us. We kind of quadrupled our numbers on on that. It was uh, interesting to see that pan out, and I think we've gained quite a few listeners on the back of the Sight and Sound episode. So if you are a new listener or somebody who joined around that time, then welcome. You know, you can just as as Mark Maron says, you can sit at the back and. Uh, contribute when you feel confident enough to um but yeah it's uh, it's nice that we we that episode took place and then a little bit of a kind of impetus for pushing forward came out of that and it's great to to start 2023 with 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 that sort of uh, boosting us going forward yeah, it's nice to every now and again reconnect with the zeitgeist and the film zeitgeist was certainly all about <laughs> the sight and sound poll. So yeah, as we mentioned before, it was it was an honor to be asked to contribute and to be asked to do something around the release. So yeah, and it was it, I think it's made me feel a bit less nervous about coming back because I sort of dipped my toe in <laughs> rather than come back cold and it is cold. Yeah, but I mean, come on, it's you know a seasoned campaigner now at the old uh, at the old podcasting, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Are you uh, are you sort of um, kind of refreshed and ready to go again? You know, it was. I hope it wasn't a sort of oh god, yeah, I've got to go back to that and get on with it kind of thing. Hopefully, there was a little bit of uh, yeah, this is good now. I've I've had my little break and I I need to get back to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was. There is an excitement to to coming back and, and doing it again and a renewed confidence um as i sort of mentioned before i think it was on the bonus you know just listening to it as a listener allowed me to comprehend the podcast in a different way which was really nice and see it and hear it in a different a different context so yeah i'm i am yeah really excited to do another season and for it to reclaim its place in my my life for sure it's been it was really good to have the break. I needed the break and got through what I needed to get through for the most part. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's nice to be slotting back into into the podcast saddle with you in the sidecar. <laughs> I don't know. That's a few metaphors mixed up there. Yeah, no, I have to come up with, with uh, some kind of partnership uh, metaphor to describe, you know, our journey forward. But yeah, and it's, it'll be good to talk to you as well on the bonus. So we're going to record a after party bonus, which we were doing beforehand. Uh, for the, So for those of you who subscribe to the Patreon channel, that'll be available straight afterwards. Um, I just want to say with regards to that as well, a quick shout out to two new subscribers at, at the uh, £2 level, and that's Harry H. Is that a comedian, Harry H? It's a good good uh, email handle, but uh, somebody called Harry H. And then uh, a listener called Sean Kelly. So thanks very much to you guys for, for joining. You get obviously access to all of our bonus content, including our monthly newsletter and the post-episode bonus podcast which obviously as we've just said is coming afterwards if you do enjoy what what we do and uh think to yourself yeah i'd buy those guys a coffee if i met them in person at the cinema then please consider supporting us the as you all know the podcast is our labor of love but we do have running costs and it's we definitely want to keep the show ad free going forward so any support you can lend us is much appreciated so today we have a much anticipated episode where we we're bringing back 
our good friend and former colleague, now erstwhile auteur and star of uh, film, British film directing and Cornwall film directing and international film directing going forward, Mark Jenkins. Yes, it's the Ennis Main episode. Uh, and it, it, it feels really fitting to start the season off, start a new year off, focusing on Mark's latest film and yeah to coincide with its with its cinematic release mark as you sort of mentioned in your conversation with him has been here with us since the beginning you know just as a as a listener as a contributor as a co-host you know he's been on this journey with us from the start so yeah being able to to welcome him back with the the release of his latest film is is really nice and to kick our new season off with it feels feels really fitting as well so hopefully hopefully people will enjoy this episode yeah, and he gave us quite a lot of time in the middle of his opening weekend, which is pretty important, you know, sort of going forward for his career. Um, so that was that was just great to get that amount of time, really. But that's coming up. First of all, Neil, you did want to um, talk about a film that you'd seen recently that you think is uh, worth having a look at. Yeah, so uh, just a quick mention, really, for a film called January, which is coming out in January. <laughs> and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been around for a couple of years sort of doing festivals and it's finally out in the UK in cinemas uh, this weekend actually in terms of the theatrical release the reason I wanted to mention it is a couple really one it's a it's a folk horror in the same way that Ennis Main is a folk horror in that that's a label that's been slippery slipperily if that's an adjective attached to it um, and does a little bit to give a sense of what the film's about but is also kind of misleading um and also because it's co-written by alex barrett who we've had on the podcast before who made a uh, london symphony and uh it's a bulgarian film and it's just yeah it's really wonderful movie it's it, I, it reminded me of a western so it's it's got a really great setup there's these two men and a jackdaw which i was very pleased to see a, a good feature by a jackdaw in this remote landscape sort of hold up in a hotel which feels like the Overlook Hotel, although it's completely dilapidated, and they're in a shack just off to the side. And loads of visitors arrive at this place looking for someone who's not there anymore, uh, this character who's kind of moved on. And it reminded me of things like The Great Silence, and there's a really great Andre de Toth film called The Day of the Outlaw, where it just feels like a Western, like, you know, something's going something's gonna to kick off with these people arriving looking for this person who's not there. And it kind of never really pulls through on that but that's fine because it kind of goes in these other interesting sort of directions that feel sometimes they feel noiry sometimes quite pulpy and also kind of like it's i think it's much closer to a kind of lovecraftian cosmic horror where there's something in the woods that is is sort of playing around with the yeah sort of people space and time and uh yeah sort of it dips into folklore here and there but it's a really really confident film looks absolutely incredible it sort of sits somewhere between Balatar and Jeunet and Caro at this kind of really striking production design and cinematography and yeah it just it goes in a really interesting direction there's a clue in what I've said in terms of some of the references but I, I won't give it away because it pays homage to this film and this filmmaker towards the end um, in very very direct ways but it's a really interesting twist of uh of form that uh, i think is really great and yeah it, it they they reached out in terms of could we do an episode on it um but obviously with being on hiatus and coming back with mark's film we couldn't really fit it in but i did want to mention it and i think if you can catch it in the few cinemas it's in this weekend 
uh, and see it on the big screen, then it's going to be a really rewarding experience. Oh, that's great. That's a great shout out. I'll, uh, I'll definitely look out for that. Yeah, I think you'll really dig it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always love kind of like stuff that is faux Western anyway, or out and out Western, really. And I remember I was uh, talking to you about The English, which I really rated, you know, as a TV show that sort of used the, the big cinematic tropes and just looked amazing you know, as a, as a, as a Western, but it's interesting how, you know, what you said at the beginning there feeds into this idea of being attached or a film being placed within a genre and whether a filmmaker aspires to be part of a film movement, especially, you know, when there's all this talk about the idea of folk horror renaissance or gothic horror renaissance and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, it's interesting how that does segue to use one of our favorite words into uh, my conversation with, Mark Jenkin, of course. And yeah, we, I spoke to him just yesterday at, down at the BFI in the green room there. Just a quick thanks to Jill Redding, the BFI press officer, for setting that up and, and placing me in, you know, <laughs> within his heavy schedule, let's, let's put it that way. But it was, he, was, he seemed really relaxed, actually, so it was great. I think he knew that you know, he could just sort of basically take his time and say what he wanted, which was, which was really nice. And, and I went to a, a screening the night before the one at the the picture houses so it was a full house there and he did the a quick q a afterwards but yeah it's just it's one of those films that get you get rewarded for further viewings i think this is me with mark jenkin on ennis main Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. It's great to it's great to be here. Obviously, I want to say you know, big friend of the podcast, but you're more than that. It's a sort of in, integral part of the show's inception back down at Falmouth. I, I was thinking the other day, we, were you at the first, the very first live screening that we did? What was it? It was was it um, Repo Man? Yeah, it was. No, I wasn't. But I remember, I remember listening to that podcast so i must have been yeah i think i was i wasn't at the screening but i was already waiting to hear it because i remember you you talking about it originally with with neil and it was going to be a radio show oh yeah yeah and then like mark douglas from from Falmouth university was going to be involved and it was and then and then it became yeah and then it became a podcast at a time when i don't really i hadn't really got my head around podcasts i thought oh wow is it Oh no, it's not going to be a radio show. It's going to be a podcast. Yeah. That's you know, it's going to be much. It's going to have much less reach. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and then not, not really appreciating what podcasts 
well they probably already were yeah. huge they just weren't on my radar well i mean it was the it was around 2014-15 so it was when serial was happening and suddenly everybody kind of realized what yeah we'll see i didn't like. listen to serial until yeah. i was hand processing the um <laughs> the the all of the negative for for bait oh right that was when i got into that Fantastic. So it was kind of like something on the background then to, as you were doing the, the process. Yeah, I just got through so much. I hate, <laughs> I hate to use the word content, but I got through a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff in the studio because I was just in the studio eight or nine hours a day. Yeah. So I was, I was just looking for recommendations and I would just, yeah, I would just see on Twitter what everybody else was, was doing and, and, and gradually caught, caught up with pop culture for a while lost track of it again mm. soon afterwards but but you didn't have to do that for this film for Ennis Main did you I mean w did you miss that a little bit you know the, the fact that you had total control of the, the entire process I didn't know because I worked out a way of having some control over the way the neg looked even though the lab were processing it but I think what I did miss was the distance that the hand processing gave me because we finished bait and then I spent three months processing the neg uh so i didn't see a, a moving image at all from the footage until christmas and we'd finished shooting in like october and so when i did see the moving footage i it was i had 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 that distance and it felt quite new yeah and and that really informed the edit and this time by the end of the shoot i had all of the footage so that then I had to design, I had to work some distance into the process by yeah. saying, right, I'm not going to watch anything for a couple of weeks and then come back to it. Whereas on bait, it was enforced. And I think the one thing that's really valuable when you're making a film is distance. But, but nobody, and distance is, is really time or other people. So you can get distance by, say, working with an editor or you can get distance by not looking at any footage for three months. And because I do a lot of stuff myself, I don't get any distance through other people doing stuff. I also, on this one, didn't have any distance through time, except for what I sort of wrote into the schedule. And, and once the film's into production, everything's such a race to get to the end. Nobody ever schedules in like, right, we're gonna, we're gonna shoot, then we're gonna do nothing on it for six months. And I think I think a lot of films would be actually improved by that, that but you would never there's no way of scheduling that into a yeah. production of a film well, it was interesting what you were saying the other night in the pitch houses q a about being in two minds about how influenced you were by the rushes that you did have this time yeah and and the idea of building that that feeds in the process to what the film's about in many ways in terms of time and distancing and isolation and what have you yeah yeah so we we, we sent off the negative twice a week while we were shooting and then we'd get rushes back to look at and it had pros and cons that the overwhelming pros was that we could see that we you know that the camera was working on a very basic level <laughs> and that the you know the production design that we were going after was working well so joe and may and the and the production design team i would show them that the, they would look at the footage because they wanted to see how their work was was um looking i think mary was less inclined to look because she didn't want to be distracted in her in what she was doing on screen, and, and then it would have been a real doppelganger as well in terms <laughs> of seeing herself. Yeah, in two ways. That, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. weird when you think about how the the process feeds into the the themes of the film. Yeah, and once you once you've established the way you want to work, it's it's really important not to compromise. That. And and I couldn't help but look at the footage. But the first the first couple of batches that came back I looked at in forensic detail and then 
by the by the sort of third lot that came back, what I was doing was really just scanning through it at high speed just to check focus, exposure, things like that, and not getting not getting obsessed with the content of it because I knew that it would affect it would it would inform how I was going to shoot the rest of the film, and I might end up with a sort of head bod leg version of a film that was sort of changing through what I was looking at, and it, and I and I was sleep deprived and sort of in a state of kind of mild panic most of the time and that's no that's not a, that's i think that's a good state to be in to make creative decisions when you're shooting it's not a good state to be in to analyze the effectiveness of what you've done when you're looking at it on a tiny screen with no sound and you're worrying about the next day so i found this fascinating in and of itself but then as a follow-up to bait but then also on so many different you know technical genre cultural context and other levels, even kind of metaphysical, you know, ideas that, that are in there. So how, how far does the idea for this film go back? Is it pre-bait? I mean, obviously we can talk about the relationship to COVID, but where is it in the sort of timeline of your creative no, you it's, know, output? It's post-bait. And I should give credit to, to Adrian Bailey, the, the writer who, me and him came up with the original story idea and then i wanted to take it in a in a very specific way so i took i took the idea and then and then create the screenplay but the, the original idea which i was based around having a making a genre film with a with a single protagonist and and it being set on an island that was mine and adrian's idea that we kind of cooked up together what happened was that the success of bait made it it, it, it made me think about what I needed to do next in a, yeah. in a much more focused way than I'd ever thought before. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think the decision, I got offered a lot of stuff. I got called in for meetings and I got asked, you know, did I want to do this? Did I want to do that? Here's a book, here's a screenplay, you know, attach yourself to this and that. All really flattering stuff. My ego was like saying, yeah, yeah, go on, do that. Do that with those people. And, you know, this is a big thing. And, and you know, the temptation to do that was, was really overwhelming. But, um, but I think in conversation with Denzel Monk, the producer, and with Matthew Bates, who's my agent, we decided that it was really important just to reinforce what had happened with Bait. Because Bait yeah, was yeah, such yeah. an anomaly in terms, not in terms of my, my work, but sort of the British film industry. I think that it was important just to reinforce what that had done in a way and just do it, do another film, another small film, and do it quickly and do it without drawing too much attention to us. But parallel to that, I'd been, a lot of people had been talking about bait and what kind of film it was. And obviously the formal aspect of it was getting a lot of attention. Sure. Uh, but also people was, which people were saying it, it felt like a horror film, you know, when they were writing about it, that it had this sense of the uncanny and the foreboding over it, um, hanging over elements of the film. Um, and I, and I, I, I took that really as a, like an invitation to, to make a genre film, which I, which I found really attractive because when we were trying to get bait made, it was difficult to pitch. And I'm terrible at pitching my ideas anyway, but when you're trying to raise money, you know, saying we, we want to do this film and people would say, what is it? Yeah, I, I was reading, sorry to interrupt, but just right. I was reading about your your aversion to kind of genre categories. But I can imagine if you go into a room and say, you know, I want to make a Cornish surrealist folk horror. It's like, that is a, a narrow kind of niche in a way. But that, but that was easier than pitching bait. When right, you say, okay, that's interesting. When, people, when you say, oh, what you, 
what film you're making in re in relation to bait and i'd say oh it's a drama and people go oh yeah oh cool <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. yeah and then i'd say oh, no no but it's you know it's a, it's it's black and white it's 16 millimeter it's hand processed it's post-synced and it's about cornish fishermen and still you're in yeah, an yeah, area yeah, where yeah, people yeah, aren't yeah, getting yeah. massively excited and then once you've made the film once we'd made it and then people were saying oh have you seen this this black and white 16 millimeter hand processed post-synced film about cornish fishermen it's amazing you know you have to sort of do the film to sure to, to to sort of do justice to the, the pitch so so i i was excited by the idea of people saying oh yeah so you've done bait what are you doing next and just be able to go i'm doing a horror film now i think on reflection i, I don't know whether we've made a horror film mm. and i think certainly calling it a horror film might be a mistake because it might disappoint out and out horror fans sure and it might put off audiences who don't like horror that's the thing about genre though isn't it it's kind of like everybody's got a kind of ownership over what horror should be yeah and then they'll make their decisions whether they like it or not based on that yeah and then some because i think i never really thought of myself growing up as a horror fan because i had preconceptions of what a horror film was but then as i got older and thought actually i am i'm a i am a horror fan yeah most of my films that i really like uh, can be defined as horror films like like a lot of cinema really so yeah that, so that was that was a starting point i think right I, we we can write a i can write a script that is um a genre film it's a it's a horror and so i i wrote it and wrote it very quickly and um i always write pen and paper so first draft is pen and paper then i type that up and that becomes a sort of I call that the first draft, but it's already a second draft because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I change things as I as I type it up. And I read it back and just thought, wow, this isn't this isn't a horror film. Um, there's no horror in the content. And then I thought, well, the people who always said bait felt like a horror film, and it was to do that was to do with the form. Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. suddenly made me realise why people thought bait felt like a horror film, and it made me realise how Ennis Main could be yeah. a kind of horror film without it necessarily being on the page i mean you could do a you could write a write in your head a romantic comedy and then turn it into a horror mo movie in in the form just you know just the way you, yeah. you sound it or well, shoot it it's like that trailer for um you seen that trailer that's on youtube for the shining yeah yeah that's right. the, where they've put um the um peter gabriel track on it and turned it and put the voiceover and turned yeah, it into yeah, a yeah. family and that's what there's that one of star wars as well with the horror the horror trailer for star wars right yeah 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 <laughs> so yeah you yeah you you can i mean the form is as important as mm. the as the content i think not enough and not enough films acknowledged or yeah. filmmakers acknowledge that. And if you do, you you know, like I've been called a formalist filmmaker, and I suppose in the in the modern context, yeah. I am because I I I'm in, as interested in the form as I am the content. And the mm. danger is you don't get accused of being style yeah. over content, which I think is is um, problematic if it's style over content, but form the form has got to be as important as the yeah. as the content there's an article that literally just came out sort of about 50 minutes ago in the independent placing this film in this renaissance let's say of folk horror you know maybe started by midsummer but the witch you know robert Egger, egger's work i mean was that something that was in the back of your mind about 
there is a wave of these films that, that that is coming out now and you know were you interested in in where where it fits in that regard no i didn't um i mean i loved the witch and i love robert's work mm. i love what he does um I no, I di- I didn't really think of it because I, I I didn't when we were making the film we were never thinking it of as thinking of it as a folk horror right because my idea of a folk horror was so narrow that I probably wouldn't have thought of the of the witch as a folk horror I was sort of so obsessed with a sort of English folk horror which I was quite wary of because I didn't want to be sort of associated with that which was the Wicker Man and blood on satan's claw and witchfinder sure. general that you know the yep. so-called unholy trinity that actually <laughs> started off really distancing myself from that folk horror because i wanted it i wanted to do something that was cornish distinctly cornish and that meant sort of rejecting the english folk horror the pastoral merry old england yeah, which yeah, is something yeah, i yeah. find in the modern context now is a really dangerous vision of of england an imagined version that certain people seem to want to go back to, yeah. you know, a made up version of, of yeah, England. I, it's funny because all of those kinds of films, I'm, you know, I've seen them all, I'm aware of them. It's not my kind of thing. And I'm really interested though, how that fits into sort of, you know, a political little, little Englander mentality in well, that's, some ways. That's you what know? I'm scared of is the little Englander men- mentality. I know that like the mo- probably the most prominent of the the Unholy Trilogy is is um, The Wicker Man, which yeah. is Scot- Scottish, but that feels very, it's like an, Eng- you know, there's a lot of England yeah. in that version of Scotland or that uh, in that film, f- I, I feel. So I was, I was defining what we were doing by what we were not. So I was saying we're not English folk horror. So I didn't want to use that term. And then I watched that folk horror, brilliant folk horror documentary that I can never remember the name <laughs> name of, that Kingsley Marshall at the at School of Film and Television gave me the DVD. And um, he said, oh, check this out. And so I, I watched it and I thought it was all going to be about the unholy trilogy but the documentary is really long and i thought oh wow this is gonna be a deep dive into those three films and then i watched it and it's about folk horror from all over the world right and it and it was um it was really enlightening because I, I suddenly realized well everybody's got a folk history most people who've got a folk history have got a cinema that's attached to it yeah yeah, yeah. and then you know and the the, the the realization that a film like onibaba is a folk horror and then I was able to, myself and Denzel were like, well, we can do folk horror and we can be Cornish folk horror. Yeah. So we can define this film and ourselves by what we are, not by what we're not, which is a much healthier way to to identify yourself. So I went on a real journey, not just in terms of how to define the film, but I, I felt really uh, refreshed by being able to define myself by what I am and what I'm not. So yeah. it was like, this is Cornish and it's a Cornish folk horror and it's part of an international huge cinematic lineage that is, you know, continuing all the time. And I don't have to say we're not this. You could just say we are this and this is our contribution to, to that huge body of work. And we, and maybe we're the first Cornish folk horror. Maybe we're not, I don't, you know, cause it defining folk horror in the first place is so yeah. complicated that maybe maybe there are other Cornish folk horrors and maybe bait what maybe bait was the first Cornish folk horror you know because yeah. in some ways it fits the definition of a folk horror more than Ennis mm. Bain does you know the the idea yeah. of people coming in and um you know 
and the problems of the the people coming from an urban area to a rural or sure. coastal area. You know, bait does does fit the defin some definitions of a folk horror more than Ennis Main does. Yeah, and there's there's quite a lot of horror that, as well that is rural, but not necessarily folk. You know what I mean? Just that kind of setting and the idea of isolation in a sense, but it not really reaching back to kind of oldy world paganism or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and but I think sometimes the sort of urban perspective of, of the countryside it is, is a bit like yeah. there's a fear that <laughs> yeah, is yeah. sort of, you know, more about the person coming from the city than it is yeah. about the people in the rural or coastal area because you know there's yeah. there's distinctions between the way people live and people's expectations and and even some le you know s difference some differences in morality and things like that but actually you know despite being different in terms of the way we live we're actually all the same yeah 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 you know and scared of the same shit a lot of the time well, you know yeah I mean? and it all comes from fear <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, and yeah. then you invent these demons and monsters that aren't really there yeah Mary Woodvine, obviously, is um, the lead mm. and is your partner as well. Yeah. Um, so was she always going to be the protagonist? Did you write it with her in mind? And, you know, was that even like a deal breaker in terms of the, you know, pre-production and stuff like that, you know? We had a protracted casting process okay. where I didn't want to cast Mary in it because I didn't want to be, it seemed too convenient I didn't want to be accused of nepotism. And in fact, I saw something online the other day, the the, the woman who did the um, the woodcut picture that's featured in the film, her surname is Jenkins. Uh. And I saw something online, somebody said, <laughs> somebody asked about the woodcut and somebody replied to it, I think it was on Twitter, and they said, oh, you know, oh no, the, the woodcut's done by um, his wife. You know, somebody making up some bullshit. Everything's yeah, yeah. done within, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's promoted so much that I do so much of the film. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of expected. Yeah, of but it, but this person was saying, oh no, you know, it's all done sort of in house kind of thing. So, so right from the beginning, I was worried that I didn't want to be accused of being nepotistic. So I resisted casting Mary in the film, and um, and at times she was actually acting as like a a casting director because she was suggesting her own peers as potentials to play sure to play the role and we were going really around the houses and i was thinking about different people and nobody ever seemed right you know and, and denzel was just sort of like waiting for a kind of decision for me to make up my mind about casting or to put together a short list and then one day i just thought well i've written this for mary sure. you know you don't live with somebody who's an actor and then you write a female character who looks and sounds <laughs> like yeah. your partner yeah. and is the centre of the film. And so I just said to Denzel, I think it should be Mary. And he was a bit like, good, at, at last. <laughs> the, the elephant in the room has yeah. been um, dealt with. And yeah, and I'd obviously written written it for her, and I spent I spend a lot of time saying I don't think about the audience, and I, and I try and just work on a gut level, and I try and avoid any kind of allowing myself any kind of outside interference yeah. in the creative process. But I think that's another I've found many examples in this process. But I think that's one of many examples of time where I was worried about what other people yeah, were thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. and maybe if Bate hadn't put me in a certain bit of limelight. I wouldn't have been thinking that and I would have cast Mary straight away and we would have, you know, got on with it quicker. But I, I, I do think I was 
I was slightly aware of how that was going to be perceived. But as soon as the decision was made, I I can't imagine it not being mm. Mary. And also we couldn't have made it. I couldn't have made it if it wasn't for Mary because we've got a shorthand. I know what she can do and I know how to get the sort of yeah. the best out of her. And part of that is because I, I wrote it for her. Yeah. So obviously being together, you'll see things that, that she can bring. But then I was just wondering, now it's finished and you're looking back at the performance on screen as objective way as you possibly can. What is her final performance like for, for you? How do you? How do you feel about it? I mean, to me, she brings not really a sense of terror like in the sort of trite final girl type thing, but it's almost a kind of introspection like how how is my mind working here is almost kind of what she's asking herself all the time that's what i kind of got from it yeah well there's i mean there's no backstory in the script there's nothing there's no context of why she's there in the screenplay and she asked me certain questions about what her motivation is and i would always throw the questions back to her some things i would i would answer but but the thing is when i write a screenplay every all the characters are just me I can't, you know, they're, they're all, any writer only writes versions of themselves, if they're, even if they're writing an existing person, you know, even me writing a character for Mary, you know, it's not Mary, the character isn't Mary, but I was writing a character that I knew Mary could play. Um, but that character's still a version of me, and I've got dis- a distinct personality, as we all do, which is uh, an introvert. I'm a classic introvert. I've got some extrovert tendencies, but at the heart of it I'm, I'm an introvert so that character although I was writing it for Mary who is a classic extrovert and is as extroverted as I am introverted the character on the page is an introvert and so then Mary comes in and 50% of it is going to be her or more than that probably because I've put no context or backstory in so she brings in an introvert as, a, as the actor portraying she yeah she comes in as an extrovert portraying an introverted character so it becomes fleshed out and then so when i look at that character it's it's like um there's a complexity there because it's like an extrovert yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to break out of a of an <laughs> introvert but also i i never put adjectives and adverbs into my screenplays i never describe motivation i never say the volunteer work walks into the room she crosses the room cautiously um, you know, some scripts you see, she's thinking back to what, you know, you know, she's thinking back to what she just experienced on the cliff. And you think, how the hell do you act that? And also as a writer or as a filmmaker, why would you want to close off all the possibilities that the actor brings that you can't imagine? You know, you mm-hmm. bring an actor in with all of their craft, all of their human experience, all of their preconceptions that's when the characters become multifaceted. So the script has got so little, all of my scripts, so little motivation for the characters because I want the actors to bring that, you know, and, and, and there'll be discussions before the camera's rolling, but I want to be surprised by what they bring because up until that point, all the characters are just versions of me. In Ennis Main, it's even another level because not only did I want an actor going through the process of trying to discover what the character is, I also, on the screen, wanted the character to be going through the, the, the process of working yeah. out who the character is. So then what you get is this sort of kind of thoughtfulness. And, and the bit, my favorite bits of the film is where Mary's character is kind of almost like ambivalent to terror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, because yeah. that's really confusing. Yeah. And, and I remember when I 
wrote the script. I showed it to my friend Gweno, read it. And um, I remember we, we'd been to a screening. I'd, I'd done a talk and she'd come along and she was just happened to be in London. And we, and we were walking to the bus and she was going one way and I was going the other way. And we were talking about the script and she said just one thing. She said, it's not going to be like Mary being terrorized and chased around the island in a 90 for an hour and a half. <laughs> and I said, no, you know, absolutely not. The film formally is like a influenced by the 1970s sort of genre cinema, sure. but content wise, it's not, it's, it, it's nothing to do with that sort of like a, a terrorized lone woman in an IT being chased around. But her, but Gwenev's words really stayed with me. And at times I did think, you know, when we were, when at times when Mary was being terrorized, I, I was just, I just, I would have a, I would think back to what she'd said and think, is, is this, am I falling into those kind of tropes? And no, I think it stays out. It's, yeah. It stays out of that because I, I think what, what's happening is that to me, and I'll come to my, my sort of overview reading in a minute. Um, but this is a character who is actually does have a have almost an agency on on the fact that she's going through an experience that she's at the centre of. I mean, maybe there's some working out about whether it's psychological, whether it's kind of imagined, hallucinatory, all of those kind of things. And also, you know, to do with memory and all that kind of stuff. But you never get the sense, I don't think, that there's a kind of like a physical monster or something that's out together in that thing so that's where it becomes a kind of psychogeography yeah. in many ways and if there's a monster it's the monster that's sort of within her which yeah, i think right. is you know that never consumes her really yeah 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 now obviously sound is such an important factor here and you know you could argue that sound should be thought of as 50 percent of every film in terms mm -hmm. of the cinematic experience and the post syncing that you do obviously gives you a lot of control over the sound design but how much of a clear sense of, say, the symbolism of the sound or the textuality of, of the sound in terms of how it's going to drive things forward is in your head beforehand or as you shoot and how much is just, you know, what that, that, that's part of the joys of the editing process afterwards that you've talked about? I think it is part, it, it's the joy of the editing process that you, I can chuck a sound alongside a picture yep. that I think was going to work and it doesn't work. And then I have to find something else. You know, the, the sound, I'm always thinking about the soundtrack. I don't mean, you know, I don't mean the score soundtrack, but the sound of the film, I'm always thinking about it, but I don't know how it will work until it's in relation to the picture because the sound doesn't, cannot exist in isolation in the way that the picture can't work in isolation. So I can look at some rushes, some silent rushes and think, oh, that doesn't, that's not working, but I know that if I do something with the audio, that will work. And sometimes I'll look at a visual and think, wow, that, that looks great. When, once I do the audio work on it, it's going to just go through the roof. And actually, when I come to put the audio work on it, why it doesn't work and what I end up with is with silence. So yeah, yeah. You, I can't consider picture without sound and I can't consider sound without picture. And that's why I do the whole thing at the same time. So as soon as I start p cutting the picture... I'm cutting the sound sure. and even more so in this film where you haven't got dialogue to, to dictate rhythm, I'm doing Foley right from the start. So, right, you know, yeah, first yeah. day of the edit, I'm already recording footsteps. So you literally just kind of stop and I'm like, 
I'm going to have to go find a sound now that goes in there. Yeah, right. mo- I mean, most of it I do in the studio. Yeah, you know, some, and then I'll have a, and then I'll put together a list, and I'll put placeholders in, and I'll have a list of stuff that I need to go out and record, and then that's such a joyous experience because I go out with a hard disk recorder and, uh, or sometimes even a tape recorder and a microphone. I just go out and collect sound effects, and and that's just really joyous and and you're right it is 50 percent of any film but if you're working on very with very low budget it becomes more than more that, than that yeah. because you it, it it i mean without being cynical about it it's it's cheap you know creating the sound world of a film yeah. costs a lot less money than creating the visual side of the world which is why i don't record any sound on location because i don't want to waste any any of that i can do the sound later was my original thought when I started working in this way. Let's just get the pictures, get the expensive bit, the bit that we can completely control, and we'll I'll deal with the sound later. We we haven't got time to stop to wait for an aeroplane to go past. We we don't I don't think we have the right to turn up in a location and then demand that the residents in the location all be quiet. You know, I don't want to be that. You know, I haven't got the personality to be that sort of to have that conversation with people. I want to be really light touch. And you can you can shoot visually without causing much disruption because, you know, if if it's really busy and you need people to be out of the way, then you move the camera closer to the subject. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, you make the frame smaller and don't record any audio because then you don't have to put any you don't have to ask people to shut up. And that's why through that thinking, I've ended up with films my films have big close-ups because i move the camera closer to the to the subject to to remove anything that's incongruous within the frame and and they're post-synced and that's now become sort of like a an artistic consideration yeah. rather than a logistical one that kind of leads on to my next question which is kind of involved and i don't want to well maybe this will trigger your what you said the other day about you know the anxiety about lack of media training that somebody accused you of yeah which is kind of interesting um but like just on, on what you've said there, I mean, we interviewed Michel Chion, you know, uh, last year yeah. on the podcast. And obviously he's written a lot of theoretical books on cinematic sound, particularly related to your use of acousmatic sound or disembodied mm-hmm. sound here as a vital in the film in building the psychological mood. But then you also use it symbolically and experimentally. And like I say, without sort of framing this as a, do you actually know what you're doing, Mark, kind of question? Are all of these sound elements part of a, a coherent intentionality? Or is part of this also just you want to play with abstraction? Like, for example, the seagull drops into the water and it's breaking glass, you know, as, as a symbolic well, element. I mean, know? that's the perfect example, actually, because I, I was at that point in the film, that part of the process, I'm trying to create naturalistic sound as much as possible. And then I'll subvert it in one way or another. Yeah. So I've, I start with nothing, So, which is a brilliant starting point, I think. Because quite often with low-budget film, the first thing you do in the sound is mend things. You know, So how can we get rid of the sound of this aeroplane that's on you know, the dialogue track? Or, you know, and it's all this kind of stuff. If you start with nothing, you've got nothing to fix, which I think is a much better starting point for a creative process. So that scene with the diving um, gannet, I was trying to recreate the sound effect of the gannet hitting the water. So it dives and it breaks the surface of the water at something like 70 miles an hour. So I needed a sound effect that was a gannet breaking the surface of the water at 70 miles an hour recorded from about half a kilometre away, which is a really specific soundtrack. I'm not going to find that soundtrack in a sound effects library, for example. I could go out and I could try and recreate... or 
not recreate it, but I could record the sound of a gannet flying if I yeah, went and sat on the cliff for another two weeks waiting for to a get the sensitive directional microphone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then what I did was I well I'll recreate it in the studio. So there I am with a bucket of water and a stone and playing with distance of microphones and playing with reverb and echo and you know and and shielding the mic and all this kind of stuff. It just all sounded like so crap and like an attempt at realism that I just couldn't achieve. So then I just one day I just thought bollocks to it. This I cannot do it. I cannot get it natural. I'm not going to get a realistic sound. So what else can I do with it? And I thought, well, I'll just have a call forward to something that happens later in the film, which is the smashing glass, and just drop a sound effect of smashing glass over it. And then it solves the problem, yeah. but it also creates something that's then adds to the kind of sure. atmosphere of the film, a, a level of abstraction, a level of foreboding. Not everybody hears that sound either. And then it... Be it like I say, you know, because I've started with nothing, I have to create something. And then if I can't create it, I have to think, I have to use my imagination. And the more you can be forced to use your imagination, the more distinct you're going to work, the, the, your work's going to be. But I, I follow my gut, you know, I'll, I'll drop a sound on there. And the second I listen to it back, I'll say yes or no. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ginsburg's first thought, best yeah, thought. That's yeah. what I go with all the time. So there's no sort of intellectual idea about what I'm doing. I'm just following following my gut. And some of it's just being playful, you know, and, and mm. you know, just thinking, oh, what would happen if I drop this on it or drop that on it? Knowing full well that I don't have to, you know, I'm not performing this live, so I don't have to get it right first time. I can try and if it doesn't work, then I'll try something else. I've read quite a few of the interviews and seen a couple of the Q&As, now one live and the one that you did with uh, Mark Kermode. And there's always a variation of the question. Bait was black and white and this one is colour. So I'm trying to try to figure out a way to, to talk about that without being so obvious, but it does look so vibrant. And it's a bit speculative to ask you whether you think maybe in the digital age have audiences somehow lost an appreciation of colour. But for you as a film watcher, are you kind of dissatisfied with the use of colour in contemporary cinema? I mean, you and I have talked about the sort of blue tinge quite a bit in the past, you know? <laughs> Yeah, what do they call it? Orange, orange and teal. Yeah, <laughs> that that grade that became. I don't know where. where I don't know whether we've got past that or not now. But it certainly Maybe. was. Every film was kind of orange and teal, and it was yeah. to do with you know contrasting colours and had a lot of colour science theory behind it. Yeah, I. Yeah, I mean, some of it's to do with presentation of films. I think one of the projectionists, projectionists I spoke to, said, you know, when we were getting the thirty-five mil print of. Ennis Main made he said oh yeah well, the, 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 he said DCPs are fine but it, it, DCP is the pastel version of your film what, if you've got the 35mm print that'll be the true version of it and seeing the 35mm print it looks exactly like we saw it in the grading suite whereas the DCP does sort of take the edges off the vibrancy a little bit yep. so I think yeah that, I don't know I, I mean I try not to get too into sort of film versus digital because I haven't seen the movie yet but I've seen the trailer for Empire of Light for example right. and you see what Roger Deakins does with yeah. with digital technology and just go well I mean it just looks absolutely yeah, 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 yeah. incredible and they're you know they're, they're a bad looking digital films and they're a bad looking 
films that are, that are shot on film. And I, I do think they look different. I mean, we're sat behind, we're, we're, there's a poster behind you for The Living and the Dead, which is a BBC One TV series, which is a ghost story, which I actually picked as part of my season that I'm curating here. Yeah. I think episode two of, of that series, which was on the surface seemed like quite a random choice to put in. Um, and, I, and I paired it with Haunters of the Deep, which is a 1984 Cornish set children's film foundation movie but that the living and the dead i mean that's shot digitally and it's and it's beautiful because it's it's tried to well successfully digitally replicated a sort of two strip technicolor process of of the time and so i think if there is a thought if there's a lot of thought that goes into the way a film's looking then digitally films could digital yeah, yeah, films yeah. can look incredible and like like Eda. Um, oh, it's amazing! Yeah, and um, the other one, the Cold War, as well. Yeah. Sorry, I'm. Th- yeah, well, yeah, both those films, and actually, Cold War, which my, my one of my f- amazing favorite films of yeah of recent times, sure. and you know, black and white digital, which I was always really skeptical skeptical about, but that I mean, that looks so yeah, yeah, beautiful yeah. that film. So I think it's to do with I think when you get led by the sort of technology and sort of the contemporary standard of cameras or whatever i think sometimes it seems that people don't consider the form as much whereas if if you're if you're sort of using technology that's perceived as being obsolete or old-fashioned then i think automatically there's a reason why you've chosen it but also you have to sort of justify its use and then you're really aware of the form whereas it's sort of just an automatic thing it seems a lot of the time there's not enough conversation about form i don't think when you're developing a project you spend months talking about the script and everybody's got an opinion about the script and quite rightly so you know everything's sort of tested within a script and then when the script signed off it's then like the formal discussion seems to be absent really and sometimes i think it's because people don't feel they know enough to sort of have an opinion but that, that shouldn't stop people from asking questions it's interesting though you you're talking about yourself as a formalist and Neil and I were discussing not on the podcast actually we were just talking about the way in which it's critically out fashion now to like films or to really laud films that have a a very clear directorial intervention you know so people like Inaritu and Tarantino mm. whether or not you like their films or not that they they have a formal hallmark and it's much more now part of the zeitgeist, I think, in critical circles to to like films that are much more minimalist slash realist. Yeah. And yeah, I wonder whether that is kind of maybe on the verge of coming back, that sort of sense of, oh, this is just great because it looks great and it does amazing things with what cinema can do, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Because I think that's... I mean, you know, there's a place for everything. But um, I do... Yeah, I mean, I'm not interested in realism as a filmmaker. As an audience member, I'm really interested in it. Sure. Um, and I'm an audience member much more often than I'm a filmmaker. I watch m- a lot more films than I make. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so I, d- you know, there, there's definitely room for for everything, and you know, sort of diversity of of uh, work should be really encouraged. But I do, yeah, I do get a bit sort of, I, I yeah, I do get a bit disappointed when people can write something off and go well it's oh it's just about the form it's like yeah but films are mechanical art form don't you can't ignore the fact that it's a film and actually i maybe sometimes i go too far the other way but i like celebrating the the fact that 
you're watching a film. So I like reminding people, you know, our eyes don't crash zoom. Yeah. But I love a crash zoom and I love the vibrant colour and I like an imp- and I like grain and I like the image almost falling apart and I like characters who break the fourth wall and and I love just celebrating that form not because I just want all of my films to be like an advert for cinema no. but because I think it works so well with well in two ways one I'm obsessed with our suspension of disbelief which I can never work out whether whether it's because we're really intelligent that our suspension of disbelief is so brilliant or whether we're just really thick, you know, <laughs> that you can be sort of caught up with something yeah. that's so clearly artificial. But I love yeah. I love how the fact that the, the artifice doesn't really affect your going with the film yeah. or not. And um It's the moment when the intellectualization of film falls apart when you just go, We're all just monkeys staring at the screen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we just, yeah, we just, you know, we've decided to go to the cinema. We've then decided what thing to see. And then we've walked up, paid for it. We've walked into a really artificial space where somebody's then turned the lights off. And then we stare at a screen and then some light hits the screen. And then we all go, oh my God, (laughs) you know, are we really sophisticated or are we really stupid? But whatever it is, it's, it's brilliant. And. And I, yeah, I, I love that. I don't, I, if I want to celebrate the form as much as I want to communicate the content because you can't have one without the other. If I could tell, if I could do that verbally or with the written word, you know, if I could tell the stories I wanted to tell or, or more specifically create the atmospheres that I want to create, I would do it through sort of verbal storytelling Mm. or by writing because I think that feels easier than having to go through the whole mechanical process of making a film but I can't do it you know there are amazing writers and who I'm completely in awe of and the great poets who who you just read something go oh god how did how do you just do that somebody David Spittle who's a writer who's up in the northeast who's who's who who interviewed me and he's featuring me in a book he's writing I met him in Newcastle the other day and he gave me an envelope with a that had a book of his in and a card he'd made me and also what I hadn't noticed in the envelope was a little book which was a Shropshire lad an old um a, a little edition of a, a Shropshire Lad written by A.E. Hausman, who's pr- like one of my favourite poets. Sure. And that, I just was looking at the envelope early and that dropped down. I just thought, oh, there's, you know, I, I just love Hausman because of what he can, the atmosphere that he can create with, you know, one of my favourite poems, which is um, the Into My Heart and Air That Kills, which Rogue used at the end of Walkabout, which was like one of yeah, the yeah. really important film for me eight lines that poem is and it's just the whole world you know if i could get anywhere near creating that atmosphere with words alone i wouldn't make films you know i'd be doing that but the but films are the way that i feel i can create the atmospheres that i want to communicate and, and and as much of that is about the form as it is the content which in the story i always tell is that it, it's it's about the dream state it's about the language of the unconscious the subconscious or even the conscious you know the non-linear non-plot driven way that our minds work and the thing i always say is about try and explain a dream you've had to somebody it is impossible yeah. don't w- when you wake up and go 
oh, I've had this amazing dream or somebody, you know, says to me, I had an amazing dream last night. And you think, oh my God, they're just about to try and explain it to me. This is going to be excruciating. And it's either the most boring thing you've ever listened to, or it just sounds like that person's making it up. And it's because you are trying, unless you're a poet or an amazing writer or amazing with language, you're not going to be able to do justice to what you experienced in your unconscious or subconscious with language alone you need film to do that because dreams are atmosphere led they're not plot driven it seems a bit trite now to sort of hit you with my prosaic uh, (laughs) this is what this film means outline but i know without getting into you know no i really like i really like this because i yeah i know that you know that i'm just going to listen to this and offer no opinion on it whatsoever right well you can i don't want to know whether you think it's right that's that's just yeah. ridiculous but what what it maybe leads you to kind of well, leads us to talk about a little bit more so yeah. and it aligns very much with my sort of interest in sci-fi rather than folk horror let's say you know going back to the genre yeah. discussion but for me i just felt like mary is the last woman on earth like in an Omega Man scenario or Omega, Omega Woman scenario as it is. So every contact that she has with a, a human being, and when I'm, when I'm saying that, even the radio messages, all of this is imagined, right? Yeah. And and when we're talking about, you know, with the relationship with the fisherman, whether it's her husband or partner or just someone that she has a relationship with or with the whether it's her daughter or herself or a combination of the two, all of these things are imaginings or hallucinations. It doesn't really matter which. They could be like physical hallucinations or Im- psychological imaginings, right? Yeah. But these are happening because she's so alone, she's beginning to lose a grip on time and space. Yeah. And you talked about that, that idea of, you know, when, when you know, if you think about COVID, when we're alone, it, like that idea of, oh, it feels like we've been doing this for weeks or, and really it's been days and that kind of stuff. So yeah. if you were alone in the world, and your concept of reality starts to break down, what might be a way that you could retain that grip? You might start recording things that happen just to remind yourself of your your relationship to your physical reality, i.e. writing down things that happen to plants or in nature that are around you or dropping a stone into a, you know, down a, a mine shaft just to hear that sound to think, oh, okay, space and time still kind of correlates to, to my experience, right? Yeah. So she's not taking readings as part of a scientific study or anything like that, as we may infer. It's kind of grounding her material reality. But as that starts to break down psychologically, she starts to be able to be in tune with the way that nature and buildings have a kind of internal or cosmological energy. So her her thoughts about her own past and whether it's herself or a memory of her daughter kind of are aligning with the past of everything that's going on around her. So this is why she can now start to see that that mine shaft had miners in it at one point. And, you know, this, the ocean um, and all of the deaths that have occurred kind of correlate to her own experience of the, of the ocean and this kind of thing. So she suddenly, because she's totally alone, has this, like I say, sort of cosmic, sympathy with the land and everything around her so it's almost and and part of that is it's a kind of fabulous evocation of freud's doppelganger you know that that i i mean we talked a little bit about that you know where the familiar becomes terrifying yeah 
you know, so all of the, all of that is going on. So then it reminded me then of other, I mean, I know you've done this series, you know, the D, the, the DNA of Ennis Main, but like this really made me think of something like Memoria, which I don't know if you've seen. Yet. I haven't, no. Oh it's, my on my wa- it's on my watch list. Right. And actually, I, I mean, I put it on my watch list because I saw your, I think you published a yeah, reaction yeah, yeah, yeah. to it. And well, as soon as you watch that movie, give us a call and we'll taper an immediate reaction because yeah. I'd love to see what you think about this. In yeah, okay. To, yeah, cool. In, in, in relationship to this film, but even films like Arrival, yeah, where the, Arrival's the, great. Yeah, where the central character can kind of manifest the past and the future. Yeah, because of the language that she's given. I mean, obviously, there's no aliens coming down here, but in a similar way, Mary can manifest manifest the future and the past because of her aloneness. And then other films like La Jetée or A Ghost Story, which are time travel movies. So there's this this sort of way into, I think, the sci-fi genre because of this scenario that you've, that you've put the central character in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I know it's not part of your intention, but do you see that reading though in the film, you know? Um... Yeah, I mean aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think um, that sort of um, trying to keep hold of reality and the, the kind of routine yeah. element to it, and and it's interesting you saying that the flower, you know, maybe the flower isn't a sort of um, biological study; it's just keeping an eye on something to see how something's changing, so yep. you can keep track of time. Yeah. I think that's really interesting in relation to the pandemic sure. because what. The the what I think the pan the, the 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 effect the pandemic had on the film for me was that we filmed it in March and April, twenty twenty one, when we were actually going to shoot it in April and May twenty twenty, but we we got delayed by a year, and then I said to Denzel, let's move it forward a month. Let's shoot it in March and April, and the reason we did that was because during that lockdown in twenty twenty. Me and Mary and Morgan, that you know, our family, we would go out into the into a field out the back of our house, which a farmer had allowed us, or landowner had allowed us to sort of use. You know, people in the village who didn't have a garden would go out and hang around this field to do our sort of daily exercise. And what I noticed was the season change. Winter turned into spring almost minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, because we were doing the same thing, we saw it change. So it was like, oh, look at, you know, look at look at this coming out, look at that, you know, the blackthorn or the hawthorn or the, you know, the, the, the daffs have gone or, you know, whatever was coming out, we saw it in detail. And I didn't write it down, but it was, I was so preoccupied by it because I thought this is like when I was at primary school when in the summer term or the spring term, you do a project where you'd measure the, you'd measure the rainfall each day and the yeah, temperature yeah, yeah, yeah. and write it in the, on the wall in the classroom. I thought, I'm watching a season change in a way that I haven't done for 40 years. And that became really important watching that. And actually, and I thought, God, spring comes really early now spring comes in march and i said to denzel when we film you know because by the end of march 2020 all the flowers were you know everything was out it was spring i said to denzel when we film next year we gotta 
we've got to shoot earlier because spring happens earlier these days. Mm. What actually happened was that in 2021, spring reverted to its traditional time of year and it didn't actually come out until after we'd finished shooting. So I think that that is interesting because that did tap into what I think I was going through in the pandemic, which was almost like a, you know, it, 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 it wasn't like I felt like I was the last person on earth, but it, it certainly felt post not post-apocalyptic yeah. it felt apocalyptic yeah. you know because can you actually have post-apocalyptic but it did it did feel a little bit like this is um it it, it felt like a moment mm. that, that that we were all going through and the root and routine i don't know if i talked about this in the q a that you were at but routine became so important yeah 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 you know and that was i see in order to stay sane yeah routine was the thing the framework that we yeah. built everything around which i think is is in although the script was written a long time before well before the pandemic um i think that really came to the fore during the rewrite post the first lockdown that i did through the shooting of the film which was done during the lockdown which but was a bit of a paradox because we were in lockdown but we were making a film together and so although we were everybody was in lockdown we were all together in a way that we hadn't been together for a long time so that that definitely influenced how what i was shooting and how i was shooting stuff even you know the social distancing meant that certain shots weren't how i'd imagined them sure. so the, the the pandemic is in in there and then in the edit recognizing the importance of that routine and what happens if a routine becomes subverted um or how important a routine becomes if your existence has been subverted in some way yeah 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 thanks mark for for giving us so much time this is uh, absolutely fantastic i just i've heard a, a, a lot of stuff that you've you've said at different points and we had a chat at london film festival and stuff and back going back to that and re reflecting on the fact that this is the opening weekend and you know i'm not bothered about what spider-man 3 or avatar's box office is but the box office for this for you is actually probably quite important you know maybe it's the first time you've ever sort of thought about it in that way i don't know but i love that story you told about the uh the spanish film festival and how it made their qu them question their entire kind of existence <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just thought could you maybe you could sort of talk about that again about about a film a film like this <laughs> entering into the film world that we're in right now and how you kind of think about that you know? yeah well, i mean there's lots going on there was the festival rollout yeah. and i mean the launch of the film which you know can which is a a festival out completely out on its own not because it's can necessarily but because it was our that was our world premiere so you know we were we were that that was a kind of really important moment to the critical response yeah because i mean everything sells out so you can't go oh yeah, yeah you know we've oh we've sold out at can it's like well that's not that's based on the fact you've been selected for can that's not on the quality of the film sure um so the the first look reviews coming out was such a, a massive thing and um i think there was you know it was it was positive with a lot of head scratching which was kind of like the best thing you know to have it largely positive but a, an ongoing discussion about where the hell yeah, this yeah, film yeah. sits and what is it and you know it wasn't all positive um and then it went to various festivals because the film was sold in quite a lot of territories i didn't go in person to as many festivals with this film 
as I did with Bait, where I was kind of going there to not to sell the film, but it, into territories where the film wasn't wasn't sold. So they did it, you know, the, mm. the sales agents did everything to kind of to to sell. So I was getting sort of I was hearing back getting reports back from festivals so um stitches film festival in in barcelona was the one that you're referring to where <laughs> yeah there was a sort of i think it was because there was a very the first screening over there was like an eight o'clock in the morning and people went in and watched dennis Mona at eight o'clock and i i saw a thing on twitter which was written in spanish and i did a quick translate on it because it was lots of capital letters and exclamation marks i thought oh this looks interesting so i did a <laughs> i did a translate and it said the festival programmers at whoever sh- Whoever programmed Ennis Main for eight o'clock this morning should be is a terrorist and should be imprisoned. You know, something like that. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's a that's great. And it was all of this negativity about the film, you know. And because it was because all this negativity was coming out and this sort of controversy about it, then you got all of this sort of the people who did like it came out really passionately positive about it. And then it led to this sort of like discussion about what the role of the festival was in light of and it wasn't just the NS main screening. I think there was another film that had ruffled a few feathers. Right. So I thought, you know, that's that's um, great, brilliant to be in the middle of a a, 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 um, a discussion about it, about what you know where this film sits and and the role of that particular film festival or the remit of that festival or you know or or the what this where this kind of a film that's kind of genre but also kind of non-narrative and kind of experimental where it sits and. It's difficult because I'm kind of conflicted because I want to make films that do push the boundaries a little bit and and also I'm human so I do want everybody in the world to love yeah. love the film and love what yeah. I'm doing so there's a real there's a there's a conflict there and then the you know in the box office is um, you know this is our opening weekend so that's that's really complicated as well because I'm kind of tied into I want to see the emails where they're talking about how many people have come to see the film but also i don't want to i don't want to be meeting up with people going and and chatting money and stuff but you know it is it's a it is an art form that's dictated to a certain extent by market forces and yeah. economics and it's got to be i've got to be commercially viable to be able to make another film but you know but i'm not i'm not james cameron who comes out and says right avatar has got to as it, we've got to take two billion yeah, at the yeah. box office for for it to be commercially viable, you know. Yeah. But but on a on an incredibly scaled down version, um, I can't help but think, yeah, well, it's got to people have got to come and see it. Yeah. And you know, and the, the thing with bait is it had such a massive long tail that, and it was the word of mouth thing that was really important. Um, and I suppose that's the thing that I'm that that's more important for this film is that the the word of mouth and and as I've said in several Q and A's, word of mouth can can go two ways, you know. So yeah, you can yeah. wish for word of mouth, but don't. But, but you might get the other word of mouth where people go, no, don't go and see it. So we'll we'll now wait for news of hold, the cinemas holding over for for week two and week three. You know that'll be the that'll be the thing. But but also you've got to look at it in the context of cinema audiences are down. Yeah, eighty percent. I mean, Bait did incredibly well at the box office. I think it, you know, went well over half a million pounds at the UK box office, which was way above anybody's expectations. But and and that film came out of nowhere. Nobody was expecting it, and so there was a buzz and a word of mouth thing. But also, that was released at a time when cinema attendances were the highest they'd been for a long time. Sure. And now we're at a time where we're coming back and we're at eighty percent. So. In some ways, in some ways, I'm sort of 
just having the film in cinemas is so exciting because we made the film when cinemas were closed and we didn't know how many would reopen and we didn't know how many audience members would come back but also i'm human and i'm thinking well you know i've just done a preview tour where almost every day sold out and the one that i think about most is the one that didn't sell out yeah and it all and and it was (laughs) it was a five o'clock screening on a wednesday night in newquay in a huge cinema and it and it was two-thirds full right right you know, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you've got to take that oh god i mean that's you know and when when i think about it like that that's sort of even more impressive than maybe sure. selling out some of the other places that we've sold out on the tour so very quickly my expectations change based on what's happening in the moment but we've had an amazing opening weekend that mm. you know we're sat here in the bfi and i i just love being at the bfi south bank to to, to have my films on here and to have bfi distribution doing everything that they're doing you know the tour that they've organized for me and people keep saying oh it's you know i have messages from everybody saying it's amazing that tour you're doing must be so grueling it's incredible that you're doing it and putting the film out there and for me it's just like it's just the most pleasurable thing that i can do and it's such a privilege to get out there and for somebody who spends so much time saying i don't think about the audience when i'm making work i'm at a point now where all I'm doing is interacting and thinking about the audience and actually it's just a total joy to see, to be in cinemas that are full of people and just go, well, you know, post, I'm not going to say post-pandemic, but, you know, post-lockdown, post-cinema closures, there's nothing like it. And to be in an audience is exciting. To be stood on the stage introducing your film to a packed house is just like off the scale. Well, congratulations, my friend. Uh, We loved it and... As always, great talking to you. Great talking to you, Dario, as well. And um, yeah, it's just uh, what you're doing with this podcast is is unique and uh, I love it. Thanks, appreciate that. Cheers. Okay, so I really do hope you in, enjoyed that. It's it, it's always wonderful to speak to Mark, and I know he's you know obviously he's given a lot of press, so you can read a lot and you can listen a lot to, to him in different in different places. And I was thinking at the beginning, I said to him off off mic, I'm going to try and do this interview without asking you any questions. Now, you know what I mean. So it was just a conversation, and I tried to keep the sort of interview in inverted commas questions to a, to a minimum. So it's good to, to have that back and forth. The other thing I forgot to ask him about, though, was was about Daguerreotypes, the Agnes Varda film, because he literally just introduced it before he'd come and spoken to me. And I'd mentioned on Twitter that I'd, I'd watched that film as a kind of prep because it's not an automatic film that you'd say see correlated with uh, with Ennis Main. But the professional interviewer that I, that I am, I, I forgot to mention Daguerreotypes. So apologies for ed- anyone who wanted you know, daguerreotypes and his main crossover content. We'll have to go for that another time. But anyway, Neil, what did you make of that? And, and you know, what's your thoughts on Ennis main? Uh, where to start? I mean, I do want to kind of circle back to daguerreotypes in, in terms of your, what you took away from watching it in relation to Mark picking it. I'm interested in that, but maybe we'll, if we've got time, we could cover that uh, maybe on the bonus. Yeah, I love that conversation. And it was just a really nice conversation. 
you know, like I think that you created such a nice atmosphere for him. And he's obviously very comfortable with you to actually just to just talk. It felt like just talking about it, not Q&A. And as you sort of alluded to there, like he's done a lot of press. He's talked a lot, you know, but there was there was a kind of level of, of depth and nuance to the, the conversation, which I thought was really, really rich and rewarding. And almost in, in parallel to the film, like going the repetition and the kind of the nuance of the repetition and the rhythm of, is, is really important to understanding Ennis Main. Not understanding it, but but to to taking something out of it that's 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 is, is kind of touching and and personal. I think as a viewer, there's it has its own rhythm and it has its own way that that is is, is kind of key to the experience. And I think that was that was certainly true in the conversation that that you had. It was nice to hear again a reference to the roots of the podcast. I forgot that we did talk about maybe doing a, a Source FM radio show. I forgot about that. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so thanks for reminding us that we wanted to be radio stars before we yeah. wanted to be podcast stars. <laughs> I know, I, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, I loved the deep dive on the sound. I thought you'd go in for the sound. Um, when I saw the film again the other week, the cinema here in, in Truro cranked up the sound, which was great, you know. And I think that, I think the sound really drives the narrative in the film. I think that, you know, and the louder it is, the more you're aware of like what you're hearing is telling you stuff that, is 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 joining a lot of the dots in the way that the visuals are just not interested in in that kind of yeah. that kind of conversation with the audience yeah. and the deep dive on the gannet is was brilliant that process was great because that's maybe my favorite moment in the film you know to, it's a piece of cinematic narrative foreshadowing that's all in the sound the gannet plays no relation to the story but the sound is so important in terms of piecing together parts of the narrative and, and time, you know, so, so hearing more about that was, was great. And I think one of the times I saw it, I said to him, I heard it, you know, I heard that, that, that smash and it was so great. So that was really nice to hear him go into that. A uh, little shout out, he, when he's talking about Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, um, which I think is a really great, it's a great documentary, not just because I've got a film in it, self-plug, but because it really is a, it really is a documentary which kind of pushes the, the boundaries of genre and takes its time to really say, actually, folk horror is a it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but it but it does have very, very close relationships to storytelling and mythology in so many different places. You know, it actually is part of the fabric of storytelling in a lot of what might be termed small nations. You know, so in, in, you know, and I don't mean that in derogatory term, I mean that in a kind of film industry term, you know, places where there are small national cinemas, where there's a kind of a, probably a closer relationship between national identity and cinematic output, Hollywood or something like that, you know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Nordic countries. Um, also, I was thinking, um, in, you know, when he was talking about internationally, it, it just reminded me Then it popped into my head after the interview. It's like of Matty Diop's Atlantics. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, that's, in a sense, that's folk horror. You know, when you think about the sea and everything like that and, and, and being lost, but it's not fishermen, it's immigrants. So it's got that yeah. kind of contemporary spin on it. And those and the ghosts are in the film. You know, the ghosts, they they, they return. They're, there's unfinished business. I think Atlantic is actually in Woodlands, Woodlands Dark as well. Right, right. And yeah, just I think it's really important, again, to Mark's talked in the past about the authenticity of folk horror and how there's a lot that can be felt in its authenticities. And I think that there's... It's it's been described as a Cornish folk horror, but I think more than that, it's it's specific to parts of Cornwall, and that authenticity is rooted in that real specificness, which I think is is, is kind of 
one of the things that really good folk horror can tap into. You know, you feel like you're in this place, which is like we talked, you said they're familiar and, and also really jarring and re- and make, puts you on edge because I think what the reason that it puts folk horror puts a lot of people on edge in a really good cinematic way is because we're in a period of kind of globalization, homogenization, and this idea that everything's the same and everyone's the same. And it reminds you of the, the, the differences that, that, that are really, you know, an important part of, of, of humanity as, as it's spread out across the, across the world. So there's lots of, um, and, and the other thing to mention was obviously I loved your take, your sci-fi take, which you'd mentioned before, but I'd not heard you expound on it so i thought that was really fascinating yeah it's you know that's very much me and 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 obviously mark wouldn't be drawn on the validity of that i think he thought that was bullshit but that's fine i I just kind of wanted to prove that my phd in film studies had you know some merit to it um i i bet within like three weeks of press he's he's talking about it as a sci-fi movie and not a horror movie (laughs) well yeah i i want i want to write something on the dvd for that i'm not gonna have time but you know what i mean it would be this is what it really means I mean, the other thing I think that I just didn't have time to sort of go into very much was the sort of, you know, there's the COVID element to it, which is which is fairly obvious, and the and the way that now it suddenly becomes a reflection on the idea of time and time getting folding in on itself in ways that 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 make it difficult for us to to to, to navigate our relationship to the world and each other and and you know and all of those kinds of things. But I think also. You know, there's a real, there's a real sort of environmental, not message there, but, you know, during COVID and, you know, now more and more on the news, we have to confront this idea that that the possibility that we may be in a situation where we are essentially fending for ourselves, you know what I mean, trying to survive, is not beyond the realms of craziness now of, for want of a better word, sci-fi apocalyptic futurism, you know what I mean? Where it could be, it's kind of fun to, 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 to look at those ideas and, and yeah, they can have allegories in, in, in terms of what's going on right now. But, you know, it's, it's a serious subject now. It's kind of like, yeah, we're, 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 we might not be in our lifetime. We might be facing situations where, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the the comfortable Western lives that we've been used to are, are just out of the window. Yeah, the, when I saw the film last, and he, he was talking about it, he he talked about the pandemic, and it was really moving, and it was, he was clearly moved by it. And I'd never really seen it as a pandemic film, other you know, no, it was made during the pandemic. But mm. what really struck me was he he was really adamant that it was that the pandemic was still going on that this is happening, that this is, you know, and I think that's really important because that's how I feel, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I don't feel like we're past anything. We might have adjusted to living with something, but it, it doesn't feel like it's a thing of the past. It feels like it's with us in that way that the film sort of talks about time staying with us, you know, and it also made me rethink how the film is put together from the volunteer's perspective. Sure, sure. You know, you were talking a lot about the Omega Man, which I thought was a really interesting thing. Because when when I think about the film now, I think about how we are we are invited to bear witness and that she is bearing witness. Like there's so much of the film is watching her watch and watching her see. We don't always see what she's seeing, but we know she's seeing things and we know they're leaving an imprint. And that feels like really important that we we have to bear witness to this. We have to, like you say, that's where I think so many of the readings of the film find a home. The ecological, the hauntological, you know, whatever it is, like that there is a character there whose role in this story is to bear witness and to, to, sh- to live through this experience. And that's what we're doing, you know? And okay, maybe the initial peak has passed, but the scars remain 
the the sense that that was a period of time that was completely out of sync with everything else we've experienced in our lives up to that point remains like it's it's that and that well, I think that will remain you know and I think that there is an absolute global refusal to acknowledge that it happened and how it happened and the imprint that it left on us and I think Mark's film is a beautiful beautiful experience for capturing that that feeling of what it was like and what it remains like not just what it was like in that time but what it remains like to actually to bear witness and to really bear witness to to such a global and personal it was it was both things at once it was deeply personal and and, and insanely global um yeah i I think that that that, that's really struck me it is a reminder and and again if you if you approach the film in the in the right way you know that sounds a little bit sort of high and mighty of righteous to say that but what i mean by that is that it, it is reflecting on something that i think that, that that we haven't recovered from yet almost because of the the nature of the capitalist system and and our our lives like the, the people who who run the country and the people who employ us if you know if we're talking about soft corporations in that sense it's almost as if the pandemic did never happen. It was like an aberration and now we are forced. I mean, everybody that I know looks a combination of utterly traumatized, exhausted, or just in a bad mood, bad tempered. And and like with, with, with students, it's kind of like a, there's a lot of anxiety still there. And the acknowledgement of that is so lacking. It's just like now, no, no, okay, you know, we've solved it, get back to normal now everyone and it's the the same thing has been going on really when we think about the the environmental situation for the last 20 or 30 years it's like either it's not happening or there's nothing we can do so just get on with being good capitalists and and when i said that before about environmentalism as well i don't want to sort of you know push to one side the fact that environmental catastrophe is already happening to a huge percentage of the globe you know what i mean it's just that sort of sense of us in our comfortable lives and you know thinking about a place like cornwall or you know again we've, when we've talked about we've talked about the experience of coastal towns that that experience of isolation and being separated from monetarily the conversation and uh, and the, the social infrastructure for years it's just been in plain view and, and you know, nobody talk, nobody really talks about it, changing it with any kind of urgency or seriousness. No. And that's where Mark's film feels like folk horror to me because the trauma, the secrets, the, the tragedy, the, what's the word, um, the exploitation, it's in the earth, <laughs> you know, it remains like it, 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 all over the globe, like you can say all that all that stuff and you're right that's exactly the narrative but the scars remain in the earth you know and it feels like the pandemic forced people allowed people the chance and the the opportunity to actually reckon with that and to actually reckon with that is it's it's a huge thing to do because it shapes it shapes how you see the world and how you see yourself your, your own place in it and you can't go back the first thought I had when I left, I think the first time I saw the film, I felt like that film is always going on somewhere. Like that film is always playing. Like it's like a loop. It pl- it's mm. a, it feels like a loop, yeah. you know? We join it at a point and we leave it at a point, but that film is always playing somewhere. And that, that feeling has only grown the more I watch, the more I watch yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that we are, we are bearing witness to something which is generational, geological you know and and the volunteer becomes a layer you know a layer in that and i just think it's immensely powerful 
to reckon with in a film where there's there's no there's 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 nothing there for you unless you are willing to extrapolate from it beautifully so in, in, in that really it's in that really cinematic way where the more he talks about it and the more i see it the more i kind of see where he's coming from and there are points where audiences will join that but there's also so many points in it where you will you will connect with it and and i think people won't i think and a lot of reason that people won't connect with it is because they don't want to they don't want to acknowledge what it's what it's potentially saying to them as much as people won't just like it and that's fair but you know i think that there will be a lack of engagement because it's quite profound i think when you when you sit with it yeah i mean and also you know there's the basics of it with a lot of cinema these days if it hasn't got a plot then people are like yeah, I'm not interested, you know what I mean? So so obviously that has to be gotten over. But I think, you know, when I spoke to Mark, that there is a possibility that that, that sense of cinema being more than just delivery of entertainment information may be coming around again a little bit more. But again, maybe I'm being naive there. But I mean, it's interesting with it. It's not a, it's not a film that's lacking in hope because I think there is a reading of the end that is hopeful. There is a reading, like you say, though, that is a sort of reset that this thing is just, this cycle is just going to start again. But there is a hopeful reading of the ending too. Well, I think there's a hope in that as well, isn't there? Yeah. You know, there's a hope of acknowledging, okay, this is the truth of our, this is the truth of our life and our planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where we sit within it. That doesn't mean, just, you know, almost kind of liberating to, to acknowledge the power of that. Yeah. And I think as well, yeah, like it, it looks incredible oh yeah it's amazing it sounds amazing mary's phenomenal in it like it's it's a great piece of cinema so yeah definitely definitely ticks those boxes as well sure sure and you've got to i mean to be honest again it sort of goes without saying but, but if you if you can go to the cinema catch it while it's out so yeah that's it um that's our first episode back neil it's great to have you uh back on board and you know looking forward to the the episodes that are upcoming we have our bfi kurosawa season collaboration coming up next so that'll be in the first week of february the kurosawa season is ongoing at the bfi and and the the 4k restoration of rashomon is out um on general release i think it's at a lot of cinemas isn't it um so yeah, it might be might be one the one that you can catch. But also, if you're subscribed to BFI Player, there's there's loads of um, Kurosawa on there. So if you want to swat up before you listen to our next episode, then uh, I recommend that. Yeah, don't worry, we're not covering everything because there's so there's too much. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, looking forward to revisiting Kurosawa because um, it was one of our earliest episodes. So this was a nice opportunity to to go back in and, and touch on maybe different aspects to what we touched on before um and you're back at the bfi for that interview so you like jenks that'll be your second home soon doing all of the podcast <laughs> yeah, about it. i'll be base camp my, my second visit to the green room i'll i might get a vip membership you never know um but yeah that's it and um, please come and join us on our after party now we're just gonna have a quick 15 20 minutes unedited shooting the breeze chats about various things maybe a couple of other films what we did over christmas that kind of thing but until next time this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening